Before we begin the show, I want to give a special shout out to Eric Rice. Eric is an amazing field mixer for film and television. He is also a really professional post-production audio specialist. He's starting to take on some of the editing load, so please check out Eric's work at ersoundworks.com. E-R as in Eric Rice. He's a phenomenal guy. I've worked with him for years, and I could not recommend him enough. Hello and welcome everyone to We'll Be Right Back, the future of hospitality. On We'll Be Right Back, we interview people from every corner of the service and hospitality industry, as well as representatives from organizations providing relief and resources as we learn how to manage and settle into this new reality after COVID-19. I am your host, Greg Tilt. I'm joined today by Cole Newton. You may know him from the Domino or 12 Mile Limit, two awesome local bars here in New Orleans. He is also a member of the National Board of Directors for the USBG, the United States Bartenders Guild. Cole, thank you so much for coming on the show. Please tell us a bit more about you. Thanks for having me, Greg. I am, as Greg mentioned, the owner and proprietor of a couple of dive bars here in New Orleans, 12 Mile Limit, a cocktail dive we opened in 2010 in Mid-City. And just last year, with a group of investors, we opened a bar called The Domino over in the St. Claude neighborhood over in the Bywater. Domino is a bit more of a wine dive. 12 Mile Limit has a more of a cocktail focus, but really they're just a friendly neighborhood bars for the people. And one thing I got to give a shout out to you about, Cole, for years, you know, I've been lucky to know you and you're such an active person in the community. You always had this great mentality of yes, when it comes to events or hosting things. When I was raising money for one of my first film projects, without hesitation, you let me host an event there. You gave everyone a free drink at the door. You were fantastic. It took no planning, no work on my end. You just said, tell me what you need. Let's get it done. And you have events constantly at the bar, obviously not currently, but you're just so proactive and so engaged. And I just want to say thank you for doing that. Not trying to kiss your ass too much here, but <laughs> I just felt like it bore mentioning. It, it really makes 12 Mile Limit stand out to me in my memory. And I've always enjoyed going there for a drink. Thank you. I really appreciate that. But yeah, you're right. We, uh, we 100% what, I, what I'm trying to inculcate in a lot of ways is what I refer to as a culture of yes. So if you have ideas for programming, if there's a, a party you've always thought would be a fun like theme for a party, we have a, like we do a Harry Potter dance party. Or, <laughs> um, all of our best programming has been other people's ideas. A lot of the stuff that we've tried to build internally, we've had some success with, but the really the stuff that's really stuck over the years are more popular dance parties and like game show programming, weird stuff like that has all come to us from somebody else who thought, oh, this bar would be a fun spot to do this thing I've always wanted to do. And just being able to, and so there's programming we all try to say yes to, special drink requests we'll try to say yes to, really anything that won't come to the detriment of a different guest's experience, we'll try to say yes to, because why not, you know, we're, we're in the business of making people happy. Well, thanks for letting me fanboy out a little bit there. <laughs> so I guess we can jump right in. Tell me a bit about the initial days when COVID-19. In the early, in early to mid-March, we start seeing the first restrictions on number of people. We start seeing restrictions on just gatherings in general. The hospitality industry obviously felt this in a very unique way. What were the initial days and weeks leading up to shelter in place for you like at 12 Mile Limit and at the Domino? To be honest, they were surprisingly busy for the bars. I think a lot of people saw this coming in a way and were sort of trying to emotionally prepare themselves by getting everything in that they could right before everything closed down. Because everyone kind of knew that 
any day now, we're never going to be like, we're going to be <laughs> children in place. Nobody's going to be allowed outside of their homes. This is an inevitability. So if you want to do anything, do it now. So the couple of weeks before uh, the bars were shut down, we were we were doing very, very well at both bars. Kind of surprisingly, kind of counterintuitively. But I think that's sort of what led people on St. Patrick's Day weekend to to really go all out. And in a way that sort of accelerated the response locally. But everyone was like, I don't know the next time I'm going to be able to see other people. So I'm going out and I'm partying as long as I'm allowed to party. But when you do that, it also inevitably hastens the arrival of that time when you're not allowed to party. And it's sort of a, a bit of a tragedy of the commons, you know, the idea that like we have this public good and if you use it up, it's gone for everybody, but everyone wants to use it as quickly as possible because they know it's going to be gone for everybody sooner or later. And it's not, I, honestly, that's kind of, there's a lot of problems with the tragedy of the commons we can get into in a totally different podcast. <laughs> We're going to talk about public policy and economics. But the idea that Everyone was really eager to just do things because the writing was on the wall for a while, for, from a ways out. I think a lot of people felt it, even if they didn't necessarily want to believe it. Over the course of the week leading up to, I want to say March 13th or so, was that Friday, we had a lot of conversations about it. We were checking in with the staff all the time. We don't have an official sick leave policy. We're pretty small shops. We don't have like an HR department. We try to accommodate people's needs. But I was very clear that if you had to miss work for health reasons, that you would be paid for those shifts that you missed. I did not want anyone working that felt unsafe or uncomfortable. And everyone wanted to work. I mean, the guests wanted to be there. The staff wanted to be there too. I think also because they didn't know when their last paycheck was going to be. So everyone was eager to work as much as possible that those weeks. Between Friday and Sunday, I think, of that weekend, the Friday was, I think, the 13th and Sunday was the 15th, things escalated so quickly that on Friday, we were having these conversations. We were like, all right, what can we do to help maintain safe distances in the bar? We're going to try to build up our, our, our cleaning schedule so you, we're using some sort of you know, more caustic cleaning chemicals than we usually would. We'll take out every other bar stool so people won't be sitting as close to each other at the bar. We're going to try to do all of these. We're canceling all of our major event programming so there won't be large gatherings of people. We're going to try to do all these things to mitigate the, the potential damage. And then two days later, by Sunday, we were like, no, it's time. Uh, we, we need to close down a, a, for the foreseeable future. And everyone kind of flipped over on that one, too. Like I was having, we have, I part, I, I'm a sole proprietor at 12 Mile, but I have partners at the Domino. And everyone else was kind of on, on the same track. And, uh, by fr on Friday, we were like, we're just going to see how it goes hope for the best, clean everything a little bit better, make sure everyone's washing their hands thoroughly, pull the straw caddies off the bar top so people don't reach out and grab straws and things like that. And then within 48 hours, everyone was like, no, we need to shut this down. And then the next day was when it was publicly announced that the whole state would be shutting down on bars for the foreseeable future. We did to-go drinks for about a week at 12 Mile. The initial shutdown order was specifically for, for bars, but restaurants were allowed to remain open. And both of my bars have fully certified kitchens. So we qualify in a lot of ways as restaurants. Um, but within that week, it was made pretty clear that while the state was okay with bars that have kitchens operating as to-go restaurants, as many restaurants are still doing now, the city was very clear that bars are bars. Bars are gathering spaces, uh, bars... Are, are not critical businesses at this time, shut it down. And it was frustrating because we were doing a pretty solid trade with cocktails to go at 12 mile limit. I understand it's a public health issue. You know, we're not a critical business. People can get alcohol from other sources. Even needing alcohol at all is sort of questionably necessary for people's health and, and livelihood. So I, I, I was initially planning on pushing back and lobbying a little harder 
for us to be able to do to go drinks and uh, and keep ourselves afloat in some capacity. I have not pushed that as much as I initially expected to. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a very hard decision. And I also imagine it's, as you kind of alluded to earlier, it's complicated thinking about it with your staff too, thinking about how do I keep these people on payroll? How do I keep these people safe when they feel uncomfortable? How do I deal with the city ordinances and the state level decisions and the uncertainty of what's to come? Because now we know we're shelter in place. Now we know about restricted businesses. But a lot of this stuff was kind of like, are they going to do it? How bad is this really? And the information was changing. I can't even say every day. It was as if every six hours you saw a new update. I think that your experience there really highlights just how malleable is not the word, but how fluid everything was or how, how just unpredictable it was and this push and pull you're feeling. Should I lobby? Should I not? I, I It must have been kind of hard to make these decisions. It was really hard to make these decisions. I mean, so much of this is, especially because there's so much, they're all bad decisions, right? Like, do is the, is the health and well-being of my staff versus the economic well-being of my staff. They're not going to be in a good place if they don't have any money, the only way I can really provide them money is to provide them with the opportunity to serve. And if I provide them with the opportunity to serve, then I am putting them in harm's way. It's really, it's, are you familiar with the Star Trek universe, the Kobayashi Maru, the no win game where every decision just leads to your entire ship being destroyed and there's nothing you can do about it except for change the rules of the game. Oh yeah. Cheat, basically. Like there's, there's, that's, that's what it felt like for, for, for a couple of weeks is like everything we do everybody dies. That's the only way this ends. <laughs> there's no right answer. It's all just like, do you die with dignity? That was the only choice you had. <laughs> and even that is like, it, it, it was tough. I was, that's all I can say. It was, it was a lot of hard choices with no right answers. And I, I, I hope that we did right by the people we were, are obligated to do right by. My wife and I act, went, wound up going out of pocket to make sure that all of our staff at both bars, and, and to be fair, the, uh, the, the other partners chipped in for the domino as well, but to make sure that all the staff at both bars had at least two weeks pay after the shutdown. We did not have a ton of, like we're, we're doing okay with savings. We didn't want to dip too much into the business savings, but, but Lilia, my wife and I were very, pretty pretty adamant that felt i don't want to say the least we could do because obviously the least we could have done was nothing but <laughs> the least we could feel like good about ourselves having done was that but even that that's that was like two weeks ago now that we and since then we've been able to distribute some money from from our merchandise sales and from donated tips and people have been very generous there but it's only a bit you know that people are making a fraction of what they would have been making through that. It's just a, it's a bit of a lifeline, but it's not a ton. Well, this kind of brings me to my next question. You know, bars are uniquely challenged in that in our initial call, you said, we're just closed. We are not set up for this. And the problem that whether you're a upscale restaurant or a McDonald's doesn't matter. There's this ability to do curbside pickup delivery, right? This, this experience to go because the food's the experience, but there's no, I believe your wording was there's no effective substitute for an in-person service. And it kind of the value out of a bar is being there. It's the people, it's the bartenders, it's the music, it's the lighting, it's the specific stool you're in. And you talked about, you know, wine markups. How can I charge a wine markup when you're not at the bar, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. that there's this entire, the entire value add of a bar is kind of lost with some sort of delivery or curbside service and the unique challenges that brings. Uh, I mean, 
what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I know I kind of <laughs> answered the question a bit, but <laughs> that is something that was really interesting to me. That's real. Yeah. The, the, a lot what people look for from restaurants is very different from what people look for from bars to a certain extent. I mean, there's a lot of crossover there too, sure. but it's bars are really gathering places for a community in a way that they're sort of like the, the idea of a, a pub is a pub is short for public house. It is a house that everyone in the community shares. It's like everyone's group living room and everyone's welcome. I mean, not everyone, but um, until you prove otherwise, everyone is welcome. And it's, it's a place where you interact with strangers. And when you go to a restaurant, you're mostly just sitting with the people that you came with. You talk to your waiter. That's about it. But when you sit at a bar, you are sitting with the 10, 20, however many other people you are sitting at with that bar and kind of not expected to interact with them. But that's part of the experience is being is interacting with strangers and with friends, uh, with a bartender in a way that that's what people want out of a bar. They want that community gathering space. And there's no effective, I mean, we could, we could do big Zoom groups and invite all the regulars from the bar to, to join some sort of teleconference, but it's not the same. There's really no effective way to, to engage in our core business, which is more than selling drinks, we still sell drinks, is creating a public gathering space. There's no way to do that remotely. In, in the same way, in, in, in as effective a way as, as the bar with its just, it is a room where people gather. And that is the fundamental concept of the bar. So you talked about the batched cocktails earlier, right? Well, not batched, but you talked about doing the cocktails to go. And mm -hmm. you mentioned that you've been discussing partnerships with distillers and places because you legally, it's kind of a either gray area or not allowed as your place to just do these cocktails to go. But if you tag team with a distillery or some with that kind of licensing, there's possibilities there. And you, you mentioned batch made cocktails, right? Are you exploring that still? Yeah. Well, I'm still exploring it as a possibility. If, if the bars in the future are allowed to open in a way that restaurants have been able to open with food to go and packaged beverages. Now that's currently the mandate from the state. Mm -hmm. The city still says bars are bars, bars aren't allowed to open. But the state says that bars with kitchens are allowed to be restaurants and restaurants are allowed to sell food and packaged beverages. So factory sealed packaged beverages. So whole bottles of wine, sealed beers, not draft beers. And and iron not ironically, but oddly, uh, frozen drinks are allowed. And the rationale behind that, from what I understand, is that the daiquiri shops are mostly takeout operations anyway. They're not gathering spaces in the way that traditional bars are. So that's why there was sort of a carve out for frozen drinks. It's because half of them are drive through, right? Like, <laughs> there's, no, there's not a room of people like all sitting together and chatting and enjoying their daiquiris. That's not the model there. So frozen drinks are also allowed. I would say that is not characteristic of the culture of daiquiris. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're, they're to be enjoyed away from the shop where you purchase them. Specifically, batch cocktails are not allowed in this landscape. So I reached out to some the people who make our ginger beer, some of the, some local distiller friends to see if we could use their facility to package, seal, and then take to our space, having been created in a in a in a sanitary certified off-premise environment and sealed and then taken to our place and sold that way. And I think that that would be a viable way for us to continue to be able to offer batch cocktails in a safe and sanitary and in a way that is compliant with the, the existing regulatory landscape, for lack of a more 
successful term. Should we be allowed to do so? I've, I am still planning on, on revisiting that. I kind of, I got all the things lined up to do that. And then the shelter in place order was, was issued. We might revisit this in the future if the landscape changes a little bit, but as of right now, even that is, is, is a bit far-fetched for us. Yeah. And see, I like that solution though, as a concept, because like we said, no effective substitute for in-person service. However, yeah, I can go buy a six pack of beer somewhere. I can buy wine somewhere, but I can't make the cocktails like you, Cole, make the cocktail, right? And <laughs> and I, I think that that is something that's kind of cool. I worry a little bit that people are going to realize they can. Like we've, we've put up some tutorial stuff about how to make a... Bowden is one of our signature drinks at 12 Mile Limit. It's very popular. Yes. Um, people love it. We, you can make one at home. It's not that hard. <laughs> like, I can, in theory, make a souffle too, but I don't know how. I mean... <laughs> 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 I think, but we, we did talk about that, that the idea that one of the reasons 12 mile limits takeout business when we were doing takeout drinks was so much more robust than the Domino's was, is there, because the, the 12 mile limits focuses on cocktails. We have creative, original in-house cocktails that are, you know, that you theoretically can't get anywhere else in the world. And that's still something that, that people might seek out at this time as, as a novel and interesting proposition, whereas going and doing whole bottles of wine from the domino is like a lot of these things you could probably find in a wine shop wine shops and, and bottle shops are, are largely still open if i'm not mistaken and would you like to pay several times more for that bottle of wine than you would at a store <laughs> i would like you to want that but i don't necessarily see that as the same the same value add as us mixing all of the ingredients for a cocktail that you would just then be able to pour over ice in the comfort of your home and replicate something of the the 12 mile limit experience that you've been missing. Yeah, that makes sense. And it stinks that you kind of have to wait a little bit and see how it shakes out. Bars are bars, as you said, but hopefully that's something that you can look to in the future. Potentially that's, I think there's a lot of interesting possibilities with that idea. Yeah, I've actually thought about batched cocktails or because what we, we what we do at 12 Mile already is that for any cocktail that's on our list or any any of our previous list cocktails that are enduringly popular, we batch all of the shelf stable ingredients in advance. So we're really just picking up two or three bottles to make a cocktail instead of six or seven or four even for some of the some of the simpler drinks. So and it cuts down on service time. Most guests don't really need to see the whole cocktail created from scratch every time. They want the drink. They don't want the show. I think a lot of cocktail bars sort of miss that. Hmm. But it occurred to me that we could also just bottle and market these cocktail batches for home use and get a product on the shelves and have this sort of like 12 mile at home. Here here's your Bowden. Here's your your great idea, just add X. Here's your 12 mile limit cocktail, just add lime. And so I'd already sort of thought about this as a possibility of a future off premise revenue stream. So this isn't that far away from things that we've already at least explored in a theoretical sense before. And honestly, there's no reason we couldn't do that moving forward too. It's really the only reason we never went there is that we didn't have a ton of working revenue to explore this new business model. Well, I imagine it also requires a massive amount of bandwidth. It's basically a pivot. You're not really a pivot. You're not shifting your business, but you're opening a completely new division of your bars basically by doing that. I imagine the bandwidth you'd need is massive. Yeah, it's it would it's not nothing. I'll put it that way. I mean, and, and to be fair, the day to day management of both Twelve Mile Limit and the Domino is not my purview as to the degree that it once was. So I have managers at both that handle a lot of the day to day operations. So I think I might 
have the bandwidth to take on something like that. But when we were actually exploring it realistically, I was basically still running most of the the one bar at least, and it was more of a more of a financial roadblock to to getting things up and running than than a personal bandwidth. To kind of shift course here a bit. In our discussion, you talked about the SBA loans. We had Mark Shetler on in a previous episode talking a bit more about SBA loans, the 7A, the so-called Rubio bill, and all these different elements and grants. But you talked about very specific language in the bill, and I've actually started to see a little bit pop up in written formats about this. They have the specific language about, quote, prurient acts, right, or and gambling. And you mentioned how casinos and dive bars in New Orleans are obviously affected by COVID-19. And this could, in theory, and probably does, I guess, on some level, potentially ruin their ability to get loans. Now we could say, oh, casinos, blah, 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 whatever. But these are places where people work. Dive bars here. We have video poker in New Orleans. A lot of people might not be aware of that. And you seem to raise some questions about the effect this could have, right? So could you talk a bit more about that? Uh, Yeah, definitely. And this is not unique to the COVID-19 relief Packages, yeah. But because all of the COVID-19 relief packages are flowing through the SBA and because the SBA is a federal program, they're beholden to a lot of federal laws that aren't necessarily enforced on, on states and local jurisdictions. And among those are the restrictions and that the applicant does not present live performances of a prurient sexual nature or derive directly or indirectly more than the de minimis gross revenue through the sale of products or services or the presentation of any depictions or displays of a prurient sexual nature. So the idea there being this distinguishes like a, a museum that has nude portraiture from a strip club, right? It's not about the nudity. It is about the intent of the nudity, if it is for artistic merit or if it is simply to arouse and titillate. Um, but that a that's a that's a first amendment conversation that is very hard to to defend it's one of those i know pornography when i see it is sort of the the argument and that's that's tough in its own right but the sba will not give you any relief funds if you're a strip club they'll not give you any relief cl- funds if you if you market pornography if that's the nature of your business even though these are by and large perfectly legal pursuits in in most places um the other one the other big one is that a third of your revenue a third of your income or more cannot come from gambling. And as you mentioned, a lot of dive bars in New Orleans, the entire business model is based around the video poker machines. They're effectively venues for gambling that also happen to sell drinks. And a lot of the, like a lot of those 24-hour bars on St. Charles, like Igor's and Lucky's and places like that, Avenue Pub before it sort of pivoted to become a beer bar was one of those bars that derived, uh, Ms. Mays, I think was probably in the same boat. But a lot of these bars derive so much of their actual income from the poker machines. That's one of the reasons the drinks at Ms. Mays are so cheap, is because that's just it just keeps people in the door. So, you know, casinos give away free drinks for the same reasons. They want people to keep gambling. That's actually how they make their money. But between strip clubs, casinos, and dive bars, if those three classes of business are ineligible for these relief funds, how many bartenders in New Orleans work at either the casino, a dive bar, or a strip club. It's a huge chunk. Yeah, I mean, the workforce that affects the residual, I mean, again, say what you want about gambling or whatever, you know, have your own moral ethics conversation. The the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of people employed here. And it's not just here in New Orleans. Obviously, we have our own unique take on gambling and things like that. So but I imagine other places have their own 
gripes. The Gulf South has casinos everywhere. And in some areas, it's one of the only real employers. Mm -hmm. I imagine this also would affect, I haven't looked into this, but it's got to affect a lot of, a lot of tribal governments. A lot of, a lot of Indian tribes are probably struggling and, and a big section of the revenue on certain reservations are the, are the casinos. That didn't even occur to me. That's a really good question. That's why I love this. Like you brought that up and it just, all these questions start stirring. I'm like, this is a great example of just your ripple effect of certain policies or restrictions, right? They they mean one thing on a surface level, but when you really dig into them, you start seeing like, oh, this gets a little more complicated. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting to me, the idea, like I know a lot of people that have no problem whatsoever selling alcohol, but they're like, oh, gambling? I don't know, that seems ex- exploitative. It's like, it's just another vice, another addiction, another thing that people like to do. Maybe they spend too much money on. Maybe they spend enough money on, they ruin their lives. It's like alcohol does the same thing. And also, if you drink too much alcohol, you might die. Nobody's ever OD'd on gambling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's like it's kind of a morbid humor to it, but you're right. I mean, it, it's the parallels are very strong. So, yeah, I, it, it raises a lot of interesting questions. Even like you said, the First Amendment stuff comes into play. That gets really tricky. The difference between burlesque and I think we talked about this on our on our chat. Yeah. The difference between burlesque and stripping is approximately two square inches of the body. If you cover your nipples, it's burlesque. If you don't, it's stripping. And that's about it. That alone is such a strange phenomenon. The way that the state can come in and and shut you down and say you you the way you you can't expose X parts of your body. It's it's so arbitrary almost to me that it's shocking the way that these laws have exercised control over people's bodies that over which they i feel should have a little bit more autonomy i think these are great conversations to have and i'm really glad that you kind of like push the conversation that direction i think with all the covid19 obsession we're thinking a lot about the economics we're thinking a lot about people losing rent there's very important social questions that are also being raised and i think that you know this is a great example thank you so I guess we're going to kind of start winding down. There's kind of two more things I'd like to hit on uh, if you've got time. Uh, The first one is you talked about this phased shutdown, right? Restricting numbers of people, the businesses. And you talked about that what it'll probably look like is a slower version as we reopen, this phased reopening. And are people even going to be comfortable being in small spaces together? And are they going to raise the number of people that can be in gatherings over time? Can you tell me a bit about this phase reopening idea and kind of how you're preparing or what you think that's going to look like? I have no doubts that people are going to be eager to return to bars once they are allowed to do so. These places are are sort of irreplaceable in our society you know that there's not a lot that can replace bars but they're so critical to people's day-to-day routines to their to their lives we have regulars that we see if we don't see them six days a week i wonder what's wrong we're part of the community in a way that is inseparable and people will be very very hungry to get that back and new orleans also the way that we celebrate we'll celebrate anything here we have a, we have a festival for when creole tomatoes come into season it's like Take it to the streets. You know? <laughs> so if you can imagine the degree to which people are going to want to fucking party so hard as soon as they're allowed to do so, this is going to be Mardi Gras. Oh, that's nice. Imagine, you know, VV Day. I mean, all those pictures of people returning from World War II and just making out in the street. Imagine that on a global scale. This is going to be the party of the fucking century. And it's going to be great. 
But we need to be very, very careful that we're not doing it prematurely because then it will just wind up back here again. And I do think that in leading up to that, leading up to the big final, we got this, the vaccine's out there, everyone's safe again, that moment when people are like totally just allowed to lick each other's faces in public again, we'll have something that looks like as they phase out these gatherings, they say, okay, no more gatherings of 50 people. No, okay, now no more gatherings of 10 people. Now, if there's two people sitting together on the bayou, the cops will run them off. Right. So I think we'll start to start to see it swing back in the other direction is more likely. So bars will be able to open, but they won't be able to operate at full capacity. We'll still have to do a lot of the same social distancing guidelines that we were implementing in the drawdown. We'll be implementing and slowly rolling them back as we reopen or not. You know, I mean, any of these predictions seem inherently speculative. They might just wait until there have been zero new cases in Louisiana for two weeks and then they just say okay everyone go back to whatever you were doing we're fine i don't know and and because it's also like we're not we're in a country where you can't just shut down the borders between i guess you can shut down the borders between the states we are discovering but that's not really how this country works in the same way and if we're all good but south dakota is still in the hot spot do we reopen and just hope that we don't get more cases that come in i don't know i don't i'm not a public health expert I don't know what they're going to do, but I think the expectation of seeing some sort of phased reopening, that's, that seems likely to me. For all of these infinite different possible outcomes, that one feels the most likely. And we're preparing, that's one of the reasons I, 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 it, I put it on hold for the time being, but the idea of doing prepared batch cocktails at an offsite facility, if we are allowed to open as a restaurant, and that's one of the first stages, having that in my back pocket makes me feel confident that we'll be able to continue to offer something that distinguishes us from our competition at the very least. Um, But like I said, I don't know. Who knows? It's such a strange time. Predicting anything seems just like a fool's errand almost. (laughs) Well, that kind of answers a little bit of my question that I was going to wrap up with, which was, you know, where are you going from here? Uh, You know, it looks like you're exploring batch cocktails. It looks like you're preparing for phased openings and looks like you're preparing for, quote, the fucking party of the century. So (laughs) and I think those sound like reasonable moves to me. So I I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to cover, Cole? Anything we didn't touch on that you you got a burning desire to get out into the world? Um, I'm. Not, not really. If you visit the 12 Mile Limit or Domino websites, you can link to our merchandise websites. If you want to buy t-shirts or just uh, donate tips directly to our staff, that would be greatly appreciated. It's been a real uh, real lifeline in this time for us. People have been pretty pretty supportive through those, those venues. So thanks to everyone who's, who's done that so far and, and, and keep them coming. But really, I also I think that like everything, this is this whole experience is making people re-examine a lot of the assumptions that we have about our society, about who is or is not an essential cog in our economic system, about who should be eligible for healthcare, about whether or not healthcare should be tied to people's jobs, about how people are compensated. There's so many questions that this is forcing us to evaluate. And I think the, the idea that we want to go back to normal it's like, but what is normal, right? Is was normal enough? Because normal is what got us into this to begin with. So I think the restaurant industry, like every other industry, we're gonna have to look, take a long, hard look about whether or not we want to return to that status quo, or whether or not we want to move forward with the realization. Like, if I knew then what I knew now, right? Like, what what can we do to better create a more resilient society? Um, and, and restaurants and bars are going to be a part of that. 
And so we want to be making sure that we have those conversations ongoing and not just be like, okay, we fixed it back to what we were doing before. That does not prepare us for the next time this happens. This is, I mean, even if it's really only every hundred years, this is going to happen again. And I, we don't want to be caught with our pants down next time. I guess that actually raises one extra question for me. If there's one thing you could change based on the stuff you've learned, what do you think you're going to do to make your establishments more resilient? I would like to see our healthcare system removed from our employment system. Mm. I think it does not make a lick of sense. I would, and I, we have never been able to offer. I don't, we're, my businesses don't make any money. We break even mostly. It's fine. You know, <laughs> this is not a problem necessarily. <laughs> it's just the way it is. We, we can't afford to offer healthcare to all of our employees. And God bless those who can. Businesses like Coquette who offer healthcare to all their employees. That's amazing, and I love them for it. We're just we don't have the money for that. And I don't. And so our employees are largely required to self-insure. That's a terrible system. I don't know that our businesses can do much to help create some sort of universal healthcare, but it's becoming increasingly obvious that that would be a huge boon for so many people. As and also, I think exploring some sort of revenue stream that we can have. So merch is one thing, but being able to do those batch cocktails and create a, a product that can be available in grocery stores instead of something like something that is resilient. Like if there's another shutdown, what can we do to ensure that we have another way to bring money in? So I don't know what that looks like at the domino, but 12 mile limit, the, the, the degree to which back, batch cocktails flew out the door when we were doing them that week has, has reinforced that there's a market for that. And there's that, that, that might be a, even in, even in good times, the, you know, just having a little bit of increased revenue from an alternate stream would be would be real valuable. And for a businesses, like I said, that doesn't really actually make that much money, that could be a real difference maker for us. Yeah, it sounds like you're wanting to explore how to basically diversify your business. Yeah, you know, uh, we, bars are still bars from a public health standpoint, from a business standpoint. But bars are what else can a bar be? I guess what other services can we offer that are a, that are more resilient to these types of disruption. Even if it's just, you know, it's flooding or, or, or some sort of weather event that forces us to shut down or the, the power grid fails or something like these things will happen. You know, and being able to figure out a way that the businesses can be resilient to those types of disruptions, I think is, is something that is increasingly important to me. Well, that's a great a note as any to end on, Cole. I really appreciate it. We are definitely going to include in the show notes, you mentioned the merch store. We're going to include that. Make sure y'all can tip his staff and buy merch, support a great local business. But where else can we find you on social media? Give me those shameless plugs. Hey, I am T. Cole Newton across Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 12 Mile Limit is mostly at 12 mile limit the word 12 uh, although on instagram we are the number 12 mile limit uh the domino is the dominola the domino la um on facebook and twitter but is saint claude domino uh, st claude domino instagram so follow all of those uh give us all your likes and thumbs those ups and heart emojis or whatever uh <laughs> yeah those, those are fun well, Cole, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate having you on. As always, it's so insightful. We covered so many great topics, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, couldn't do it without you. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on, Greg. Thanks for everything. All the love to the fam, too. Wife says hi. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Y'all have a great one. You too. Thank you so much for listening to We'll Be Right Back, the future of hospitality. Each episode, we will be highlighting a different organization contributing to the relief effort here in New Orleans. 
This episode, we would like to highlight Chef's Brigade. Chef's Brigade is a collection of New Orleans restaurants, chefs, and servers feeding healthcare workers and first responders while financially supporting our independent restaurants, culinary talent, and service industry. To contribute to the cause and learn about this amazing initiative, head to chefsbrigadenola.org. We have a link in the show notes. Again, that's chefsbrigadenola.org. We'll be right back as produced by me, Greg Tilton. My co-producers are Barry Schwartz of My House Events and Elizabeth Tilton of Oyster Sunday. Barry and Elizabeth are offering incredible resources and services during this time through their New Orleans-based businesses, as well as collecting and sharing various initiatives by other individuals and organizations. All of these are linked in the show description, so please make sure to check them out. You can follow us on Twitter for the latest updates and to let us know what's up, at RightBackNola. Please also consider leaving a review for us on whatever podcast platform you fancy. It helps us know what you think, and it helps people find the show. Our cover art was created by Eugenie McClellan. Our show's music was produced by Sarisu. We have links to their work in the show notes, so give them some love. 